0: And then if you're going to stay with us, you can turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Daniel. And I have intentionally slowed down in this portion because it has heavy significance in many ways. Daniel 7. We're going to take a look again at verse 13 and 14 and talk further this morning about the Messiah... And this messianic figure that in this passage is referred to as one like unto the Son of Man. Or one like the Son of Man. Daniel 7 and verse 13. Daniel tells us here, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. So whoever he's seen has a human form to him. So he's like the Son of Man. However, I've explained previously that even Jesus, right, when he was on the earth, he was God manifest in the flesh. He looked like any other human being. But then there was that moment where Jesus was transfigured. And he still looks like a man, but he's, he's not like any other man. He has that glorified look to him, and that is the same appearance that he will have when he comes again. Hence the phrase, one like the Son of Man. So he, He's human, but not like the rest of us. There's something else special and unique about him. All right, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. All right, keep that in the back of your mind. And came to the Ancient of Days, that'll be the Father. And they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So if you're a Jew In the 6th century BC, this is happening right around 530-ish BC, 535 BC, somewhere in there. And Daniel is giving you this information. You know now that one day there is going to be a great king that comes. Now, the reason we say king is because of verse 14. Dominion, glory, and a kingdom is given to him. And you know that he's one like the Son of Man. So in your mind... They don't know about Jesus and the Mount of Transfiguration. They don't know about the things we know where God is manifest in the flesh. That's not something that was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. We see it now because we can look back with New Testament knowledge and now we can see it. But if you just read these verses, you would think there's going to be a unique, special human being. He's like the Son of Man that is going to be given this great honor. So in your mind... This human king. Now I'm going to show you some other verses now. Come to Psalm chapter 2. I want you to maybe hold, hold that if you'd like. We can go back and forth a little bit. But we're going to study out today this messianic figure. <clears throat> get Psalm 2. And you know what? We're going to have to make one other stop in the book of Psalms. Let's get Psalm 132 as well. So maybe in one hand have Daniel 7. In your second hand get Psalm 132. And in your third hand... Get Psalm 2. <laughs> All right. If anybody takes their shoe off for this, <laughs> that'll just be impressive. Uh, Psalm 132. So Daniel, like I said, let, let's say about 536, I think would be a, a fair date to put on this vision that he's given us. That's 536 BC. Scoot back almost 500 years. And then you have David, right? So Psalm 132, here's what's revealed to him. Let's begin reading in verse 10. Psalm 132 verse 10. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine what? Anointed. The word Messiah means the anointed one. If you go to it in Greek, the word is Christos in Greek, which is where we get the English word Christ, which means the anointed one. So when you say Messiah, you're saying Christ. It's the same thing just coming from two different root languages. All right, he says, turn not away the face of thine anointed, verse 11. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I sit upon thy throne. So he says, David, I'm going to make sure that somebody from your lineage is sitting upon your throne. Right? Now, this is why when Jesus shows up in Luke 1, it says he'll sit upon the throne of his father David and reign forever. And ever, because they're putting together Daniel 7, that everlasting dominion that'll never go away. And we know he's going to come from David. Now, do you see from reading Psalm 132, you would know the Messiah has to be human because he's coming from David. So there has to be this human element. But so far, right, just from what we've read, we're thinking just human, but very special human. All right, keep reading. Verse 12: If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall always, or also rather, sit upon the, thy throne forevermore. David did have some children that went off the rails and they got kicked off the throne. But there is a promise given to David that one, there will be a king that sits upon his throne and reigns forever, forevermore. So the Jews have been looking for, since the day David wrote this. The Jews have been looking forward to that day when the Messiah, one of the children of David, sits upon that throne. All right, verse 13. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, and he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. So once I sit upon that throne, that's where I'm going to be. He says, this is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. So that's why there's always been this fantastic focus on the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Matthew 5, Jesus, the words of Jesus, Jerusalem is the city of the great king. So they knew this is where the Messiah will be. Now, Psalm chapter 2 in that third hand of yours. Psalm 2. And let's take a look now. Psalm 2 verse 7. Psalm 2 and verse 7. We're actually going to go through the entire psalm here in just a moment. But I want to give you verse 7 to start off with. Verse 7 says, I will declare the decree. Now this is actually Jesus saying this. I will declare the decree. What decree? I'm, I'm te- Jesus is telling us what the Father's plan was. Right? Before Jesus ever came into the world, God had made that plan to bring His Son into the world. And that that Son would eventually sit upon that throne. So he says, now I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me. So this is Jehovah God, the Father, saying to Jesus, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now that phrase, that verse has caused so much conversation, discussion, and even controversy. Not just amongst Jews or or even Christians, even Muslims will argue about this verse. It is a very potent verse. And you'll find plenty of people that teach that Jesus was eternally begotten. Is that a good point? <laughs> Somebody's calling in. what does that mean? <laughs> eternally begotten. I'd call in too and ask about that. Because how, how can you be eternally begotten? And they say, well, he's eternally begotten because Jesus was begotten before time began. He was begotten in eternity before God created anything. Oh, that, that would be to say that Jesus was created at some point, which is a massive theological mistake. Jesus, in Micah chapter 5, I'll show you the verse now, now. He has no beginning. He wasn't created. He is the creator of all things. There was a day when Jesus was brought forth, that is manifested, but never was he created. But here we have a verse that says, thou art my son this day, 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 that's a timing issue. This day have I begotten thee. So then the theologian that says, well he was eternally begotten because he was begotten before time began but if, he, if there was no time then how can there be a day when he was begotten? You see the problem they run into. They go, no, no, no that's eternity's day. Uh, now, now you're just making stuff up. <laughs> now you're just making stuff up. There was, now, now again for us because we're on the other side of history, it becomes much easier to understand this verse. I understand if you're a Jew in 1000 BC and you're reading this for the first time, you're scratching your head saying, huh? (laughs) How is this going to work? But now we see that God come down in human form. There was a day, right, when the Holy Spirit puts that seed into Mary's womb and thus this is God coming down, wrapped in human flesh. So it is God... Manifest in the flesh, this is true, but it is also right to call this God in human form. We call him the Son of God because it was the Father that begat him. And there was a specific day when that begetting took place. So now the, de- the, the decree that is declared is that the Messiah will rightfully say, God is my Father, I am his Son, and there is a particular day when I was begotten. So now we we start to see how in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, with the New Testament at our disposal, it gets much easier to understand this. But put ourselves back in 1000 B.C. And then move up to 500 B.C. And take the knowledge we have from Psalms. Take the knowledge we get from Daniel, the book of Daniel. And what do we have? Well, we have a, 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 a unique messianic figure. He's going to be anointed. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take, take, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In Acts chapter 4, when this is quoted, it says against the Lord and against his Christ. Because that's the right translation of it. So this figure is going to be a king. He's going to have a human element to him. He will be begotten. He's a king. He's the son of man. He's anointed. And he's of the lineage of David, right? So we're starting to put these facts all together. Now, Psalm 2, let's march through it so you can see in the Jewish mind what they expected from their Messiah. And then I'm going to link it in to how Jesus fulfilled all of it. And still more, there is much of this that is yet to be fulfilled, Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? A useless thing. This verse is one of the few times in the Bible we have something called a a dual fulfillment. Where this has been fulfilled already because the rulers in the days of Jesus rejected him. They raged. They crucified him. Herod was against him. Pilate was confused, tried to let him go, but then scared of the people. And so the heathen raged and the people imagined a vain thing, right? They they said, away with him, crucify him. Well, that was useless. You're you're doing away with your Messiah. This is quoted in Acts 4. The apostle said, this has happened. It will happen again. In the tribulation time, the heathen will once again rage. And the kings of the earth, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. This will It happened in the days of Jesus. It will happen again in the tribulation. Dual fulfillment. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't want heaven to rule over us. Verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. He, He is going to make a show of them. When Jesus comes back at the battle of Armageddon, he will prove who is of God, who is the ultimate sovereign. He, he will prove that. And it says he'll laugh. Because for 2,000 years, they've been laughing at him. And he says, I'll have, you know, he who laughs last, laughs, laughs loudest. <laughs> Verse 5, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath. Well, just read the book of Revelation, and you read all about his wrath. And vex them in his sore displeasure. Now, lest you think that we're dealing with some angry god that has a, a you know an anger management issue he's been very long suffering he's been waiting 2000 years since they killed his son <laughs> he's been very merciful trying to give people a chance to repent but now the day for vengeance has come verse 6 yet have i set my king upon my holy hill of zion that what was promised in psalm 132 I will declare the decree. Now here's the Messiah speaking up, the anointed one. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now if you're a Jew in the Old Testament, you might think this is David? That God is speaking to David and that God begat David and chose to put David on the throne? You might think that. Verse 8, ask of me. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. David did conquer several other Gentile nations that were nearby, all the way to the river Euphrates. Only Israeli king to do that. That was actually the land grant promised to Abraham. David actually accomplished it. It was a big deal. But keep going. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Well, David didn't go that far. But somebody will. When Jesus shows up, King of kings, and rules the entire earth. Verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You can read about that in Revelation 2. Jesus himself said that he's going to come and do this. Verse 10, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. So, all you decision makers, all you politicians, better pay attention. The king is coming. You don't want to be one of those that has banded together against him. You might want to get on his side before it's too late. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So before it's too late, bow the knee. Show some respect. Kiss the son. You've seen this happen with dignitaries, you know, where the, the king or the queen sometimes will put out the, the hand with this uh, sacred ring on it, you know, and they'll bow the knee and kiss the hand. Some, some gesture of that sort. And that's what he's saying. You, you better pay homage. You better pay respects to this one. And while his wrath is kindled but a little. Right. God is angry with the wicked every day, but he's holding back. Because the Bible says the long-suffering of the Lord is our salvation. He's giving us a chance to accomplish, verse 11 and 12, to come to Christ with humility and serve Him properly, be instructed, and so forth. All right, so what do we got here? Well, as you can see in Psalm 2, verse 7, the Messiah, clearly the anointed figure in this chapter, He is called the Son of God. Can you see why we get that from verse 2, or verse 7, rather? Do you see why we call him the son of God? This day have I begotten thee, thou art my son. All right, son of God. But in Daniel 7, he's called the son of man. So he has this divine heavenly side, but he also has this earthly human side. So if you're a Jew looking at this, you're going, no, wait a minute. He's the son of God, and he's the son of man. Uh, how? We, we know perfectly looking back in Jesus, all of this marries together perfectly. But if you're a Jew back here, you're going, What? How how is it? How is it both sides? Uh, Psalm two seven. It says, "This day have I begotten thee." Yes. Now, just get in your fourth hand. Get Micah. <laughs> Micah chapter five. Micah five in verse two. So I'm I'm showing you now. Both sides of the Messiah. There is the eternal side, or the heavenly. And then there's the temporal side, or the earthly, the human side. And the Messiah has two parts. You know why this is good to know? If you ever do have the opportunity to speak to a Jew, the Jews, the vast majority of them, every now and then you'll come across a a unique guy, but pretty much 99.9% of them believe the Messiah is just a man. Like any other man, he will be naturally born, he will rise up, he will be a great politician, he will conquer the enemy, God will anoint him, put him on the throne of David, and all is well. They do not see him as some, some strange figure coming from heaven. They don't see that. And, and the Muslims have picked up on that. So Muslims reject the idea of Jesus being anything more than just a great prophet. They don't believe he's the son of God. They don't agree that he is in any way divine, no more than you and I, just that God used him in a special way. Right? So And the reason they believe that, so they say, is they say, well, even the Jews don't think the Messiah was some special figure. The Jews just think he's human. Okay, that just means the Jews didn't see everything that they should have seen in their scriptures. This is exactly what the apostles kept prop, uh, pointing out when they were preaching in the book of Acts. They went from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue saying, you guys missed it in the scriptures of the prophets. You missed it. They all said it, but we missed it. Now we've seen it. And then they showed him Christ. So Micah 5 verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata. There are two different Bethlehems. Actually, I don't know if you're aware of that. But there are two different. So that's why you say Ephrata on the end of it. It's a specific one. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata. This is where Jesus was was born. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be ruler. In Israel. Do you guys remember where this is quoted in our New Testament? This is in Matthew chapter 2. Remember when the wise men come looking for Jesus? Where is he that is born? King of the Jews. King. And what was Herod's response? Did you say king? You know Herod's title at that time was king of the Jews. Did you know that? Rome had inaugurated him as king of the Jews. And he was in control of all Judea for many years. And now he hears, whoa, somebody else has come to take my job? Where's that going to happen? Because now these wise men are seeking him. Herod doesn't know about it. So he sends message to Jewish scribes and says, tell me, where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they quote this verse. But they only quote it up until where I've just read. And then they stop. In, in Matthew 2, you'll see where it says he's, he's going to be the governor with a capital G, the ruler in Israel. Then they stopped. You know why? Because the end of verse 2, what do you do with this? Look at the end of it. Whose goings forth, all right, that ruler, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Where's he from? Time-wise. When was he born? Ever, he wasn't. His goings forth have been from old. How old? From Everlasting. You see why they wouldn't quote that? Because they're still scratching their heads, <laughs> going, Micah, huh? What? How can you be from everlasting? Right? Now, now, you and I, we get it. For you and I, we look back and go, of course. Obvious. It's obvious. <laughs> it's Jesus. It's obvious. <laughs> right? It's so simple. But if you're a Jew back here, you're going, no, oh, oh that's, that's heavy, that's deep, that's like deep, that's deep, deep, like deep. That's tough. So now look at what you have in Psalm 2, verse 7. This day have I begotten thee. Which day? Oh, no, no, no. from old, from everlasting. Ah. So now you got this eternal origin, but you also have a temporal origin. So you have a Messiah with two beginning points. If I can say the word beginning, there's one aspect with no beginning. And then there's another aspect where there's a day. So what do we do? All right, look at Zechariah chapter 9. You, you can, if you want to just hold on to Daniel, you can maybe just hold that. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, because maybe you're running out of fingers. <laughs> That's a good Bible study when you run out of fingers, right? <laughs> Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9 and verse 9. We looked at this verse briefly last time. Let's focus on something again from it. Zechariah 9 and 9, Rejoice greatly. If you struggle, you just get Matthew, come back. That's Malachi. One more back, Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. He's coming on a donkey. Remember when Jesus fulfilled this? He's riding into Jerusalem. What did they do when he came riding in on a donkey? He had the, the ass and the colt the foal of the ass. He had both. He had an entourage, if you want to think of it like that. He he was seated on one and his possessions, his clothing and everything, seated on the other. So he fulfilled this perfectly. Perfectly. You know what they were doing? Shouting. They, They saw this and the people thought, here it is. Rejoice, shout. So they said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Why Son of David? Psalm 132. So Son of David was a messianic title. Son of man is a messianic title. Thy king, messianic title. You're starting to see where they're all coming together. Now, this says he's coming riding on a donkey. But Daniel 7, if you still have Daniel 7 there, look at how he comes in Daniel 7. So in Zechariah 9, we have the very human, earthly story. And then in Daniel 7, in verse number... 13, Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. So you got one man riding on a donkey, but another man comes riding on the clouds. So I mentioned to you briefly, was it last time, last week, whatever, whenever I was here last preaching this, some of the Jews thought if we are good, then the Messiah will come in the clouds. But if we're naughty, he'll come on a donkey. I mean, that says something then. If they believe that, he comes riding on the donkey. I mean, they're going, Hosanna to the son of David, and they must have been thinking, shame on us. <laughs> We've been naughty. <laughs> Had nothing to do with it. You say, which one is true? Both. But, but you have to understand, God works with different people, different times, different ways. Not all verses are happening at the same time. Yes, when Jesus came the first time to die, riding on the donkey. But when he comes the second time to conquer, riding on the clouds. So both things are true. All right, we'll, we'll see this idea of the clouds again in just a moment. Uh, look at Psalm forty-five. You can let go of Zechariah nine, keep Daniel, and look at Psalm forty-five. This psalm, again one of a one of the very a very powerful psalm about the Messiah. You'll see this commented on in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, it quotes this. And it is one of the strongest passages to prove that Jesus is God. That's exactly how the writer of Hebrews uses this. And Watch how it sounds here. Psalm 45, verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Right? So th- thy th- now, you look at that just by itself. You go, well, oh, this is the king of the universe sitting on the throne in heaven. That's not what he's talking about. Keep reading. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So he rules with righteousness. Verse seven. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest uh, lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee. There's the word with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So God, thy God, hath anointed thee. So we're talking here of this relationship between the Father anointing the Son. And that scepter, that that throne, is not the throne up in the third heaven. It's that throne from which the Messiah will sit and rule. So when you read this in Hebrews, it says, But unto the Son he saith, the Father says to the Son, verse 6, The Father says this to the Son, Thy throne, O God. The Father called His Son, O God. So if you want a great statement on the deity of Christ, how do we know Jesus is on equal ground with God? The Father Himself has said it right here. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Thy kingdom is a right scepter. How do we know that it's the Father speaking to the Son? We compare Scripture with Scripture. Because in Daniel, the Ancient of Days... Gives him a dominion, a throne, power, glory, and so forth. And he calls him God. All right now, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, look at Daniel chapter 9. So he has an eternal reign. So if, if you're a Jew and you read that, and you think, okay, the anointed one, the king, the son of man, once he gets to that position, once he comes... How could he ever die? He reigns forever and ever. So if the Messiah comes riding on that donkey, and then he's the king, that's it. He's not going anywhere after this. He's on the throne forever. So once the Messiah comes, he will not die. And then when Jesus shows up and says, hey, gentlemen, who do people say that I am? This and that. Oh, I'm the, you're the son, the, the son of God, the Christ. Yes, right, I am. And by the way, I'm going to die. And that's where the people went, what? That's uh, Peter says, that, not so, Lord. No, 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 no. Jewish theologians have been teaching for a thousand years that, you, that the Messiah can't die. <laughs> it blew their minds. All right? Look at Daniel 9, verse 26. Leaving aside all the depth of prophetical material here, it says, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah, it's the only time in the Old Testament you find that word used here in this passage, after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be what? Cut off. He's going to die. But look at the next phrase, but not for himself. Well, head scratcher. If you're a Jew in those days and you hear that, that just does not compute. That. That, that gives you that buffering signal. <laughs> yeah, buffering, <laughs> buffering. <laughs> How does that? The Messiah is supposed to reign forever. But here he's going to be cut off, but not for... <laughs> now again, New Testament, boy, do we have it good. We just look back and go, oh, oh yes. <laughs> oh, he's, he's dying for me. He's dying for you, right? He's not dying for his own sins. He's dying for our sins. Praise God. We get it. We see it. But boy, then back at that time, what? The Messiah is supposed to reign forever and ever. How could he ever die? Dominion, once the Ancient of Days gives him dominion, he reigns forever. But he has to die. This is where the plan of God, before God reveals it and explains it, that's why things are called mysteries. But then after it's happened and fulfilled, we look at it and go, Oh, now I see what God had in mind. So you got to see there's an eternal heavenly side to the Christ, and then there's an earthly temporal side to the Christ. And Jesus came and fulfilled part of it, but he has yet to fulfill it all. Now, we'll not spend long on this, but take your Bible, come to Luke chapter 9. We've recently been in Luke 9 for preaching. Let's do a little teaching here. You don't have to know this name, but I'll introduce you to this Scholar. His name is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is considered by many the leading textual scholar in the world at this point. Um, he teaches at the University of North Carolina. He's written many books on the topic. He um, started off as an evangelical born again Christian uh, by, by his testimony. That's what he has said. He went to one Bible school, then went to a different school to get further training. He sat at the feet of the other. At that time, he's passed away now, but a man named Bruce Metzger, who was the leading textual scholar in the world. What these men do is study ancient manuscripts, specifically biblical manuscripts. Bart Ehrman has now become an atheist. And he's written many books saying that the Bible is unreliable, this and that. Now, he has been debated, and I think sufficiently proven wrong, but he still stands fast in his beliefs that the Bible has problems. One thing, he wrote an entire book on the topic about how the idea of Jesus being God was fabricated by later Christians. That, that was never a teaching in the early days. And he went as far as to say this, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of Man. Now once you claim to be the Son of Man, Daniel 7 verse 13, you are claiming to be divine. You're not just like any other human. You are a special person, right? And I've, that's why I've shown you all these verses. If you claim to be the Son of Man... That means you're going to come in the clouds of heaven. That means you are the king that will reign forever. You're the anointed one. You are begotten of God. You're the son. All of that becomes true now. The father says to you, oh God, right? All of that is now true. So you need to take the words out of Jesus's mouth where he says, I am the son of man. But now think about it quickly. Just let the verses run through your mind. When Jesus talks about the son of man, almost every time he says it in the third person. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Son of Man which is seated in heaven. The Son of Man. He's always saying it in the third person. So this led Bart Ehrman to say, Well, Jesus is referring to somebody else, not himself. That he's actually teaching the disciples about the future coming of some great being that the Jews thought would eventually show up. Well, it is not uncommon for people to refer to themselves in the third person whenever, whenever they are speaking about grand things, whenever they're speaking about deep things. And, and I'll show you a few examples of that. Luke 9, verse 22. Perhaps you remember this conversation all the way back to verse 18. He asked his disciples, whom say the people that I am? In, in Matthew's gospel, you know how it's worded? Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, <laughs> well, he just said, Who I, the Son of Man, am. All right, so the people say, Some say you're John, some say Elias, and so forth. Verse 20 Whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God, you're the Messiah. And, and we know from Matthew's gospel again, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus was on board with that. You're right. I am that Messiah. Verse 21, he straightly charged them, command, commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, the Son of Man, there it is in the third person, Luke nine twenty two, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Come on. Who fulfilled that? Obviously this Jesus, right? And we know from the way Peter reacted to this, no, no, not so, Lord, we're not going to let that happen to you. I'll so they, they know that Jesus is referring to himself. There's no doubt about that. Look at chapter 22, Luke 22. The reason I'm giving you just a few verses on this is so that if some skeptic comes, and maybe they've been reading Bart Ehrman's books or listening to his podcast or debates or whatever he does, if they come with this and go, yeah, but Jesus never claimed this and that, I want you to have some some ammunition. I want you to know how to hold the sword of the Spirit on this point and, and how to go about uh, debunking such ideas. Jesus did clearly state that He was the Son of Man. Luke 22, verse 48. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Okay, Did, did He refer to the Son of Man in the third person? Yes. Yes, He did. But who is Judas kissing? I mean, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's obvious. <laughs> he just kissed Jesus. I mean, this is not a mystery. This is not difficult. All right. So, so if it wasn't already clear enough, look at John eight. I'll give you one more. John chapter eight. Let's begin reading at verse number Oh, let's get 28. That's my John 8:28. He said, "Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of man, then shall ye know that I am he." Well, <laughs> He says, you're not going to understand everything I'm telling you, but it will all start to click once I get to the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So the the audience he's addressing, they're not comprehending what he's saying. He goes, guys, you, you wait until you see all the prophecies fulfilled with me on the cross, and then it will start to come together, and you'll know the one you're hanging there is fulfilled now they, they didn't get it right away, but after some time went by, they start putting all these prophecies together. Look at Mark fourteen. We'll close in Mark fourteen. Mark chapter fourteen, let's get verse number sixty. Mark 14, verse 60, Jesus is on trial here, that mock trial that they had in the middle of the night, actually about three in the morning, I guess. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, answerest thou nothing? What is it which these uh, witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, capital B, the Son of God? art thou the Christ verse 62 Jesus said I am well I mean just straight to it I am and ye shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven do you see now that that is a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14 Jesus is on trial and he says they asked are you the Christ I am And in their mind, right, even when he's hanging on the cross, what did they walk by and and mockingly say to him? If you're the Christ, come down. If you're the king of Israel, let God deliver you if God will have you. Because in their minds, the Messiah should be the king who reigns forever. He shouldn't be suffering on a cross. He should be ruling on a throne. That's why they mocked him the way they did. If thou be the son of God, come down, call. Let him save you. And Jesus said, all right, guys, listen, I am the Christ. I I am that one from Daniel 7 that will rule over everything. He didn't take time to explain it. He just made the statement. Verse 63, Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Because in their minds, that's blasphemy. That's horrible blasphemy. That was the accusation was. Verse 64, You have heard the blasphemy. He has just linked himself with that great figure, that special figure from Daniel 7. We are about to kill him, and yet he says he's going to rule over everything. Oh, that was too much for the Jewish hierarchy there. and They said, that's it. Now that he's committed what they thought was blasphemy, they felt justified in crucifying him. But now you see, when we're studying Daniel, Jesus himself has linked, has linked himself to those prophecies. All right, so I hope that's been some help to you. Let's all stand. Isn't it a blessing to be in the New Testament and be able to look back and see this stuff? Man, thank God. Thank God we're on the other side of it. Father, thank you this morning for allowing us to dig deep into the Word of God. We thank you for the day that you sent your Son not only to rule and reign. We know, Lord, that one day in the future that will be fulfilled, but he came to die on that cross. The Messiah to be cut off and not for himself. Thank you, Lord, I mean, your plan is so far beyond our human rationale and our intellect. We can't figure it out unless you show it to us. Lord, thank you for how you've pulled it all together. Thank you for making Jesus uh, clear to us. And Lord, help us to love him more, learn more about him, and tell others about him as well. Please bless the service to come and our fellowship now to follow.